0: Morning. Today's scripture reading is found in 1st John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen, and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard we And heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for how you've led each one of us here today. And Lord, as we consider in each one of those songs, the concept was victory and overcoming But, Lord, we don't want to overcome just on our own. We want to share with those around us and help them join us in that happy throng. And so, Lord, as we open up your word now, challenge us, guide us, and send the Holy Spirit to help us understand these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you go out to the drinking fountain out here. And as you go out to the drinking fountain, you... Is it on? It's on back here. Or oh, do a retake? OK. Can you guys hear me? All right. So, Like I was saying, <laughs> let's imagine that you go out to the drinking fountain out here, either this one over here or this one back here behind the wall in the hallway near the fellowship hall. And as you push the button and the water comes out, starts off clear, and then all of a sudden it turns a rust color. And how many of you would take a drink of that water? No brave soul here would take a drink of that water? I wouldn't either. I'd probably be like, okay, let's flush it out for a little while. But imagine you keep letting it try to flush out, but it, it keeps coming out that color. Now, you automatically contact a deacon or the pastor or an elder and say, what's going on here? I can't drink any water out of that fountain. Can you imagine if a whole city had that problem? We don't have to imagine, do we? Flint, Michigan it was a city that had that very problem. In fact, it was under EPA standards that a city over 50,000 should have had corrosion control methods in place when they would give that water out. It actually all began with a city manager. They gave him almost executive power, if you will, ultimate power. He made a decision to go from using Detroit's water system to getting the water out of the river. And of course, when you do that, you have to have certain things in place when you're starting to use that water. Because the methods that they used began to develop symptoms. First, the colored water. Then you're in your bathroom, you're taking showers, and after a few weeks of that, you start having sores all over your body. Your kid has a clump of hair fall out of his head, or her head. And the thought is, there's something really wrong here, isn't there? There's something wrong with the water supply. You would think that even just those brief first examples would have been enough for the city to act or to do something about it. But instead, they went into denial mode. In fact, it took town hall meetings, where you can watch videos of these town hall meetings, where here's members of the community holding up the water in their house and the water they got from the store, and they're saying, surely there's something wrong here. Can't you see it? And the city council people are like shaking their heads and somebody throws their hands up like that. You can watch these individuals. They're in total denial. And they're telling them, it's okay. The water's just fine. Those are isolated incidents. Now, who would you believe? And then the little girl stands up there, and the mom points to her hair and, and holds a baggie up, and there, it's full of her hair. And then another parent shows, here's my child. Look at my child's arm. And there's these sores all over the child's arms." Now, you would think that would be enough to motivate city officials to take care of it. But that wasn't enough to motivate it. It wasn't enough to get the ACLU involved and have protests going on to to deal with the situation either. It wasn't enough that the EPA had one of their local individuals flag the water, because not because of those types of things, but because all of a sudden there was a huge amount of chlorine levels in the water that were above the standards. And so the EPA guy began looking into that, and then he began to find lead levels. Lead levels in one lady's house that were supposed to be like 15 particles per billion or something like that. Don't don't quote me on that. But ended up being 350 lead levels. And this was not just in her house. The guy began to test her neighborhood, began to test others. He wrote a report and said, isn't it something that you're concerned about that this could not just affect your population today, but the children and the next generation? He was that concerned. And they said he was a lone wolf. Basically, somebody out there trying to, trying to get, a, get a promotion or something like that. They, they dismissed this EPA agent who was in charge of that area. And then, that wasn't bad enough, Virginia Tech got involved. And you might, you can watch the documentary, it's it's on NOVA and other things. you can watch this. Virginia Tech gets involved, gets their students organized like an army, and they go out and they canvass the whole as many parts of the city as they can, sample groups all over the city, hundreds of sample groups. They write up a report showing the lead levels, showing all kinds of problems with the water, and they're dismissed. Their, their information is dismissed. Why? Because the mayor stands up there with a mug of water on the news. And he says, there's nothing wrong with our water, see? And he drinks it. Now, he probably didn't tell you that he flushed that water for five minutes before he even drank it. And that's exactly what the city's tests were. They flushed the, f- the system for five minutes before you could take a sample and send it back to them so that the lead levels and everything would be lower. But that's the state that Flint Michigan had lived in for some time. People appealed to the state. The MDEQ, which was in charge of Michigan's... Uh, Department of, of uh, all of that stuff, right? <laughs> Environmental quality. There it is. Making sure it was supposed to be right. They're in denial. Their top manager, basically, was saying, well, the city's done their tests and all this, and yeah, we see this stuff over there, but it's not conclusive. It was deemed an example of poor science. Poor science. And I won't get to the conclusion of it until later. What actually changed all of that? But can you imagine being the citizens for those periods of time? Some of them thought maybe it'd be a few days, but it kept stretching on, kept stretching on. You could see their houses, living rooms full of water bottles. I mean these crates of water bottles, pallets of them. Imagine the helpless feeling. Imagine the distrust, not only now of the organization that you're supposed to be trusting but even the state and beyond that. Imagine the feeling of helplessness. Now, I'm not here to talk about water as far as physical water. But my question is, all indicators pointed, at least objective indicators pointed, indicators that were not motivated by your city budget or your state uh, funding and all of that, were pointing in a direction that was totally contrary to where you, as a city person, sat in your thinking. It all pointed to the direction of poisoning of the children and the next generation. Because you all know that lead doesn't just leave the body right away. Someone could have a baby, in, the ne- in one of those children, and it's, they said it lodges in the bones, and eventually it comes out and it goes to their baby. All of this information right there in front of them They chose not to believe it. And what happens then to you if you're not that person, if you're in the group that you trusted them and the the group begins to be untrustworthy? Or an organization like the state and all that, government begins to be untrustworthy. I'm not here to talk about politics because that's not what the pulpit's for, but what I'm here to talk about is when trust is is undermined when truth is shelved like another report that some biased person had when the next generation is affected and the one after that from the poisoning of the wells literally what do we do about things like that you know in the bible i wish to tell you that that would be the end of that type of incident but we're estimating that community after community after community in the United States of America, especially in the Rust Belt areas of the United States, former industrial areas, have that same problem. They just haven't mounted to all of that. I wish to say that even if all of them were solved and, and, and all, the, all these situations where falsehoods were, were told were rectified, I wish to say that would be the end of it. But as we read Revelation chapter 22, we find it's the problem all the way down to the day that those of God's people are in the city and there are people outside of the city. Still a problem. If you want to see it, it's in Revelation chapter 22. It says, Revelation chapter 22, verse 14 Blessed are those who wash their robes or who keep the commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, may go through the gates into the city. That's who we want to be. But who are outside? Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, Revelation 22, verse 15. The sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and you would think that this would be the worst. Actually, it is the worst if you go through the book of Proverbs and you find the seven sins, and you you actually find a law of end stress in in the Proverbs where the seven deadly sins, we call them, the worst one is the one who divides brothers. And what do we have here? It's not the one who tortured children or anything like that. It's those who love and practice falsehood or lies, depending on the translation you have all the way down to the time where there's the city, and Lord willing, we're in the city, but there will be people outside the city that God makes, that beautiful city that he makes, people that he loved, people that, for whatever reason, even though they see the city, even though they, maybe they, they saw the glorious appearing and were destroyed by the brightness of his coming, even though they saw that, even though they saw, in retrospect, the great white throne judgment where everything was laid out before them, even though they see all of this, and they must be wondering, how did I become alive again? And Satan comes along and says, well, I can do things. Doesn't say that he did. <laughs> Who knows? We told him great controversy. He takes credit for miracles and things like that at the end. He gathers all these people. And now they're looking at this city. And they don't even want to go in the city. I mean, after all, they'll get us in there and they'll kill us, right? They have this lie in their head. And, or, or did you see the lamb on the throne? He's the one who, when, when he appeared in the sky, he killed me with his brightness. They don't even believe the truth that's right before their eyes. They're outside the city. So I wish to tell you that these types of things would, would be taken care of here and now before the second coming, but it's not going to happen. It's going to be just like that all the way up to the day the fire comes down. Falsehoods will still be there. People who can't even... Even if they heard the name of Jesus and heard the beautiful things about him, they would think the opposite about it because they've been fed lies. Serious problem, isn't it? Serious problem for the witness of the church because you look at the next verse. The spirit and the bride say, come, right? And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. They have pure water. They have a pure doctor. And they have this beautiful word of God to take to the world. And yet, the type of people they have to reach before it's too late, are the ones who practice falsehoods. Is there any hope for the church to overcome those types of obstacles and reach those types of people? I think there is. But I think three things have to happen first. To become an overcoming witness, because we know we all can't do it ourselves, we, you know, think about it. If we could all do it ourselves, then the cross is worthless, right? But also, the cross validates the law of God. So we've got this balance of law and grace, this beautiful package that God has p- p- portrayed for us. So we need God. But there is a part that we have to play. If you go over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, first thing I would say would be, to become an overcoming witness. And you say, well, what does it have to do with communion? Pretty simple. Communion represents Jesus. Represents the words of life himself. Represents that water of life. I remember years ago in the Midwest, we used to ask the question after the emblems after the were taken out, has everyone been served? Anybody remember that? Yeah, they still did it. They still did it. Back uh, in, from 2006 to 2012 when I was over there. They still did that. It a, it's a, could be a rhetorical question, because everybody had obviously been served. But it always echoed in my mind, of course not everybody has been served yet. Look at the people across the street from the church. Look at the ones driving by. Of course not everybody has been served yet. Communion represents not only a time of us recommitting to the Lord, but also recommissioning from the Lord. That we're going to take this and help people be ready for a second coming when we're going to sit at a beautiful banquet table and we want them to be there. We want our children to be there. We want our grandchildren to be there. We want those children across the road to be there. We want these people in this community who come to health events and who don't come to health events, who come to things and do not come to things, to be there. If that's not the case, you might as well leave, because you'll be partaking t- in communion in an unholy fashion. So you can duck out during the foot washing. We dismiss for foot washing. Because if this, if this is all about going through the motions, don't you get tired of just... I mean, sometimes you have to do something even you don't feel like it, but, but think about it. This is a holy act. This is saying... Not only that, but I believe Jesus is in the most holy place, and I believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb, according to the book Great Controversy, has already begun, and we are to enter it by faith. And that's what this symbolizes. This is so much that this symbolizes. So, what does it have to do with overcoming, being an overcoming witness? Everything. It's a statement saying, as I partake physically, I'm also going to leave here and do something, physically and, and spiritually as well. But Galatians two twenty tells us how it begins. You can read about Paul opposing Peter here, chapter 2, verse 11. But if you get down to verse 17, it says, If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. In other words, if I've been convicted and now of sin and somehow... God has changed my life, and I begin to do the things that I never even dreamed of doing before, Is that say I can just, oh, it didn't really matter what I did? No. I still remember writing a letter of restitution to somebody. Somebody I'd wronged. Court didn't really require it. They said, well, you could just, you know, make a phone call. I said, no, I'm going to write a letter. And in that letter I shared why I even felt felt the need, and it was all about Christ. That before I was a Christian, I never would have apologized to you. Never. No. You were wrong. you started that fight. You're the one who basically rose your prices at the store and made me want to go ahead and steal from you. It was always about the other person. But I remember sitting down and writing that letter, and something had changed. That way of thinking was, for whatever reason, it didn't even come into my mind. That was dead. I started rebuilding what I had torn down. Re-establishing relationships of trust that that basically I had torn down. You ever have somebody call you on the phone, or you call them collect, I should say, and they say, what have I ever done to deserve this? Maybe you've never experienced the, the weight of that type of question, but imagine it for a moment. The conviction, the feeling of, I've harmed somebody. Somebody that still loves me, even though I've done that to them. And you don't know exactly where to begin, but eventually you get through a process where you see that you have to give that, you have to surrender that, you have to surrender that attitude to really be changed. Galatians says, "For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God." If you're dead, the law has nothing to say about you, other than look, look, look what you're doing. All all the things you're just like Jesus. You're doing this. you're, You're upholding the law. Because you're, you're dead. The lawbreaker's dead. Goes on, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the first step, at least I know of in my life, you could come up with all kinds of ones. But for speaking purposes, they tell you to come up with three maybe. They say four, people can't remember. Two, yeah, whatever, for reason, doesn't re- click either. But three. I become an overcoming witness by first surrendering to Christ. And the banner that we sang about in the songs is the cross. That's the place of surrender. That's saying, he didn't just die to save the world. He died to save me. And I, like Paul, have to be reminded of that every day. I got up here and I was angry. I was angry when I got up on the platform. You all don't know the reasons why. Why? but I felt angry, and I was thinking, Lord, why am I feeling this way? Why do I, why do I, I don't want to feel this way. And as we were singing those songs that Les chose, the cross came out over and over again. You have no reason to feel that way. And maybe some of you came here feeling different things as well. Maybe the, the week has numbed your mind. Maybe the busyness has blurred your day today. Maybe, whatever it is, things have happened where the feeling isn't just there. But God can change that. That's what this is saying. We can go to that place that symbolizes that there is no destiny fixed. That's why I don't agree with a lot of things that are being taught in our culture. The cross tells us that even if people say things are a certain way about you for the rest of your life. You know, I remember in AA they said, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I understand the tendency there. I understand you've got to watch out that for the rest of your life. But I also understand that something can change, something, some, something can switch in your heart that says, you know, I don't even crave that anymore. And so the cross is that place. I found a quotation. It says, the love of Christ, this is from letter 97. It was written in 1898. The love of Christ in the heart is what is needed. Self is in need of being crucified. When self is submerged in Christ... I would add, daily. True love springs forth spontaneously. That situation where you didn't feel love, all of a sudden you feel love for that, that situation. Or that person. It is not an emotion or an impulse, but a decision of a sanctified will. It shows that you're on the right path. It shows that you're on the path of holiness. It consists not in feeling, but in the transformation of the, of the whole heart, soul, and character which is dead to self and alive unto God. Our Lord and Savior asks us to give ourselves to Him. Surrendering self to God is all He requires. Giving ourselves to Him to be employed as He sees fit. That's what she means by surrender. God, here I am. I'm yours. Murray died 2,000 2, years ago. Almost, right? He's dead. It's by faith saying, something happened long time ago, that now makes me a new person. And I believe that's the cross. And of course, his resurrection. So surrendering to God is all that he requires. Giving ourselves to him to be employed as he sees fit. Until we come to this point of surrender, we shall not work happily, we can do it grudgingly, usefully, that means being effective, or successfully anywhere. You wonder why? first quarter of every year. We have the 10 days of prayer with the general conference. Then we go and have uh, emphasis on personal devotions. That corporate time of prayer and the prayer service the elders lead us through, that is meant to say, okay, now House of Israel, let us go home to our tents and not just for battle, right, but to sanctify our hearts before the Lord. And the whole first quarter we talked about that idea. Staying connected with Christ. She's saying that if we're going to witness anywhere, we have to have that surrender first. So The first step in being an overcoming witness is pretty simple. You've got to die to self. You've got to surrender to Christ. And I believe that happens daily. And so, if I'm dead, then that means Jesus is living through me. And so then the witness I have is actually Jesus to people. You really can't thank me for the sermon. You really can't thank one another for the teaching and things that you've shared with one another, it's really Christ coming through you and through me that people are seeing. And that's what they're thankful for. And there's nothing wrong with being thankful, it's just, otherwise, if we don't have this surrender, extremes start developing. The extremes that developed leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD are clearly noted by historians especially Josephus, and some say he was skewed, but he talked about, and uh, there's another historian, talked about a group of zealots in Jerusalem, that even the religious people who killed Jesus, those type of people, right? Not necessarily the same ones, all of them, but the, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the council, the, the religious people, they feared these people. They feared them. They were called the Sakari, people of the knife. They're the kind of people that would come along and... and Stab betrayers in the back and leave them in the pool of blood in the streets. Sikari, these people of the knife. And these people tried to convince the residents of Jerusalem to fight the Romans rather than surrender. And you all know how the story turned out. Pregnant women being ripped open and their stomachs looking, digging in there for jewels. I mean, the Romans did horrendous things, tree after tree coming down and crucifixions all over the place. People eating their own excrement in the city. It was terrible in there. And yet, the biggest influence for them to continue in the battle, at least, at least I was reading some of the historians, one of the biggest contributing factors was not just the false messiah type of things, but it was these zealots. Is that our problem today as well? It's one thing to be zealous for the Lord. It's another thing to be going around telling lies and things like that and inciting fear and trying to gather people to fight a battle that they never were intended to fight when they should be surrendering. It happens in the church all the time. Maybe I should spend our Issues in Adventism series documenting all these things that people do. But I don't have to because Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, if you want to hear it from the words of Christ, Mark chapter 13, watch out that no one deceives you. Mark chapter 13, verse 5, many will come in my name. It's quite a few. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars, rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. If you couple this with what's going on in Matthew and Luke, those changes in society and religion and all that begin to compound and begin to be these birth pains, rapid events happening all over the place. And are we supposed to be concerned with those things? We can know about them. I'm not saying you shouldn't know about it, but are we to be concerned with those things, consumed with those things? Pretty clear the answer is no. So if the words of Jesus mean something to you, and I know some, to some people the words of Jesus are like the milk and, and, and you know, true hard-cutting condemning teaching is, is, the, is the meat to some people. Am I speaking plain enough? If the words of Jesus mean something to us, at least they mean something to me, then I will be aware of things but I will not feed them to my children and to my congregation. Because I know that sometimes sheep will wander and they will find a a little bit of a poisonous weed. And you know, some weeds in due season, even poisonous ones, we think of it be harmful to sheep, in the right time might be appropriate. Let's take foxtails, for for instance. When they're really small and they grow up, they're just fine for the sheep to eat. But when they put the head on there, the sheep will eat that head, the the seeds only to a certain degree until they realize that those things will actually dig into their body, going down their throats, and go all the way through to the other side. So the sheep know what they're eating. They'll even go up to something that some of you have, star thistle, and you say, it's poisonous, sheep can't eat star thistle. Yes, they can, but only at a certain point. I think that that's where we need to get off when it comes to the fear factors that are going on in the world. I understand knowing a little bit of it, but at a certain point, it becomes deadly to the soul. So you've got to figure out what that balance is for you. For me, I know I can't hardly go near this stuff. So Jesus is saying, there will be people coming around saying, I am he. These are ones who come in his name, so they're Christians, or they're, they're at least claiming to be. But they say, I am he. What Christian would come along saying, I am he? Nobody comes along and says, I'm Jesus today. You worship me. And nobody comes. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard that. I'll tell you what I have heard, though. People get it up in a class or a, or a Bible study or something like that where they're introducing new things, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't quite sound right. In fact, I was at the Sunshine Bands, and it talked about uh, some this idea of remembering the the basically the foundation we've said. So they, they come along and something just doesn't sound right. It almost sounds like it's undermining that. And we have this in our church and the issue of women's ordination, we have extremes of that. We have this with the issue of lifestyles, all of that. We have extremes. But the problem is not necessarily what's being taught. It's the trajectory of that teaching. It's that eventually people hang on every word that's spoken by that person. To the point where that person could say something that's even contrary to the words of Jesus. That person's actions could even do something contrary to the words of Jesus. And people would go right along with it. All I've got to give you is, don't you know Bill Parks up in Oregon? Some of you are aware of that. Years ago, he went through and he scattered members in churches. Over soap and Toothpaste. Now I know soap and toothpaste is important to me because I don't want to have those chemicals from the stuff that are, that are made now, right? So my wife makes our own soap and, and, and I get toothpaste from Toms of Maine, right? And so I understand it's important to be healthy. But it was dividing whole churches over it. And you say, well, what's so bad about toothpaste and soap? It had nothing to do with toothpaste and soap. That was actually the, that was the tip of the iceberg that came out, came out of the Bill Parks Bible study groups. It was all about following every word that he said. It didn't matter who talked to him, nobody would oppose the guy. Wouldn't you say that's a false Christ? Where his words replace the words of the Bible, where his opinions end up being what you have to follow in your daily life, and you got Bill's list on your mirror? You don't have to literally say, I'm Jesus, to do that. That's just a, a relatively recent example, and I'm glad I'm not the only one who messed with that, or had to deal with that. Jack Cologne had to deal with that years ago. Winston Church had to deal with it up in Oregon. He went all around the place. And if you're a Bill Parks follower, hey, I've got some natural soap and toothpaste for you. But this is saying that at some point, we have to watch out because if we have surrendered to Jesus and we're asking what His will is, then that means we look to His words. Our scripture reading was in 1 John chapter 1. And I'll go there briefly because I know we want to move on to the emblem, foot washing the emblems. <clears throat> but First John chapter 1 gets to the second point, which is, first, we must surrender to Jesus to be an overcoming witness. Second, we must feast on his words. When it says, when my little boys recite the Lord's Prayer with me, I say to them, every once in a while, I ask them questions. What does it mean to say, give us this day our daily bread? Is it just the food you ate? You know, the burritos or whatever. We start talking about these things. And my kids know at their young age that it it also means something spiritual. That's why we're memorizing Scripture. That's why we're tucking it in our hearts. That's why Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart so that I might not sin against thee. Against God. And by extension, his people. So the second point is, we become overcoming witnesses when we feast on the words of life. It says it right here that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life verse 2 the life appeared we've seen it and testify to it and we proclaim it to you the eternal life which was with the father and has appeared to us it's obvious it's not just the scriptures because they had the scriptures from the from the old testament when by the time Jesus came right it's Jesus is talking about. He came, he appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete, or your joy complete, as King James says. So, the words of life. I mean, you really have nothing. We, we have nothing to offer if it's not the words of life. So, first, I have to surrender daily to Christ. Sometimes it's right in the middle of some, even the worship service. i got to be willing to surrender. Second, I have to be willing to feast on the words of life. That's what this also represents. Jesus said that if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, that's what this is representing. It's representing, I believe his words. I believe what he's saying. I believe we still need to do this today because he said so. That somehow it would be a blessing. clearest indicator to me of of a false teaching is it brings about sourpusses. It says here, write this to make our joy complete, or your joy complete. Everywhere, and you can read about a vision about this, Alma had a vision of people coming uh, during the end of time, before the throne of God. Jesus gave them something. It wasn't just power. It wasn't just somehow kingly authority and all of that. It was this love, joy, and peace. Whereas then Jesus left the throne, people prayed, much power the devil tried to give to them, and it was a totally different character that was, re- rese- was re- resembling Satan rather than Jesus. So the words of life have to be our feast, and I could read through this whole chapter with you, it's pretty clear in here where it's going, but it says here, this is the message we have from him, that's from Jesus, verse five, and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If I'm watching something, or looking at something, or reading something, And I feel the darkness of... not It's one thing to look out at the night sky and feel that beautiful presence of God. But this is talking about a presence of darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. This is written in 1911. In the early history of the Christian church, the enemy tried to bring in questions that would lead to doubt and dissension. Questions that would lead to what? Doubt and dissension. There are some things that are mute points. Some things that are side issues. Those things are, you can wrestle them out in small groups and Bible study, that's fine, go ahead. But there are some things that publicly we don't need to address. But here comes doubt and dissension because of questioning. Not questioning as to understand, but questions that are bringing about doubt and dissension. So anything that brings doubt and dissension, I find suspect. I flag it immediately. At this time of John, the testimony of John was invaluable in establishing the faith of the believers. He could say with assurance, I know that Christ lived on this earth, and I can bear testimony regarding his words and his works. So how did John combat it? He said, I can bear testimony regarding the words and works of Jesus. That's from manuscript 29, 1911. And as I read that, I said, well, what have his words and works done for you, Murray? So as I read those ideas, first, I know I have to surrender daily. I know I have to feast on his words because his words and his works are really what we're told to be feasting on. But also I know in Revelation Chapter 3, that I have to stand firm. To be an overcoming witness, you have to stand firm. It says here in Revelation chapter 3, "...to the angel of the church in Philadelphia," right? Which we'll talk more about next week. "...these are the words of him who is holy and true." Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. "...who holds the keys of David. When he opens, no one can shut. When he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds." Jesus says that. "...see, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut." I know that you have little strength and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. There's that concept again. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Revelation 3, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven for my God. And I will also write on him my new name. That's what the whole song has been about. Three names. Reminds me of Peter. All the threes are related to Peter. Here we are. Three names. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you all know the story of Flint, Michigan, how it ended, right? At least this documentary portrayed it this way. Nobody would believe these messengers would come along and try to point out the truth. Try to point out that what they were drinking was poison. Until... People stood up, insiders, really, it took insiders from the state government and more EPA people, and eventually they stood up, and all this evidence that had built up, they kept pushing it and pushing it and saying, here's more, here's more. It began to mount, and then they began to ask for heads on a platter, if you will. All these people who were involved in the city, they're gonna be indicted. The person up in the state level who was in denial, they're gonna be indicted. Of course, she resigned before she, that happened, but she still was indicted. This whole thing went on. And I remember at the end of the documentary, this mother standing next to this gigantic stack of water bottles. Still not sure whether she could trust the system. The mayor, the new mayor, got on TV and did other things to try to make it right. But the damage was done. Here she was. The water was coming into her house. Eventually, pipes were replaced, all of this pure water. And she still didn't want to touch it. And I thought about these things that we read today that we have to surrender to Christ to be that overcoming witness, that we have to feast on the words of life. And then we have to stand firm all the way to the end. Otherwise, we will not have anything to offer as far as the water of life. And then maybe when we do offer it, it might be too late for some. That's what really struck me with that story. And so today, when we do the foot washing, the goal of that is to surrender. When we partake of the emblems, the goal of that is to say, I believe the words of life and the words and works of Jesus. And then the goal... When we leave this place, when we sing that song, I will change your name, the goal is to say, God, help me be an instrument, Jesus, to change other people's names as well. To stand firm and be a witness for you when I leave this place. So we're going to separate at this time for foot washing. And I know some people that may be uncomfortable if you're visiting with us for the first time, just know it's it's pretty simple. You pair up with somebody, they wash your feet, you wash their feet, you pray together, sometimes you sing songs. It's just a time of saying, Lord, if there's anything, wash it away. I want to stand firmly with you. And so what we have is some signs as you go down the hallway here. If you exit through this this door here or through that door or even the back, make your way to this hallway. And down this hallway, you'll see the signs, women, families, and men. And so we welcome you to participate in that. If you have children who need a story time, over here in the beginner's room, there will be a story time, I believe. Right, Karen? All right. So let's have prayer together. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for how you have shared with us through John and through Paul and through others, your friends, the challenge that we need to surrender our hearts right now. So guide us as we do this. Let everything be washed away. Stresses and cares. Things that have confused us. Maybe false teachings. Maybe times when we haven't done what you asked us to do and we feel guilty. All about that as well. Help prepare our hearts through the foot washing as we minister to each other but ultimately minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name.